Thank you. Thank you. I'm Father Mitch Packle, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we look at sacred scripture through the lens of the tradition that comes to us from Christ through his apostles and their disciples. Now, we'd love to have you become part of the show. You can do so by coming to our studios, like these nice folks have come from all around the country. And you can also do so by calling in during the live program, which is Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. If you are in North America, the phone number you can use is 1-800-221-9460. 1-800-221-9460. If you are outside North America, that won't work, so you can call country code 1, area code 205-271-2988. You can also send us your questions and comments by email by writing to scriptureandtradition at EWTN.com or follow us and participate with the show on Facebook and YouTube. Now today we'll see how our Lord demonstrates His power and gives proof that His ministry is from God by raising up the dead. We'll do so by raising up the son of a widow in the town of Nain. Oftentimes we say in English, Nain. Also, we'll see some similarities between this miracle to miracles that were performed by the prophets, Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament, but a little bit different too. Now, you can still get my book, which is called Praying the Gospels, Jesus, Miracles in Galilee. It's available at EWTNRC.com, where it's item number 52885, 52885. And we are on chapter 6 in that book, which is entitled, appropriately, Raising the Widow of Nain's Son. We'll be looking at this in Luke chapter 7, verses 11 to 17. Now, in the previous miracle, our Lord had saved a servant that was deathly ill. But this is something of a different order. Our Lord raises a man who is already dead and on his way to his burial. This shows how his power is expanding. His power is increasing. As, remember, the, the ministry of Christ is shown at the outset that it's the coming of the kingdom of God into the kingdom of darkness on this earth. That's our Lord's vision, that the earth was already under the power of the evil one and death and deception. And the coming of the kingdom of God is an invasion of the evil one's realm. And the evil one is associated with death. Remember, to, again, part of understanding this miracle is that our Lord identifies Satan in John chapter 8 
as a liar, the father of lies, and a murderer from the beginning. This is how he defines Satan. So when he undoes the power of death, he is directly taking on Satan. When you cooperate with death or use death as your tool, you are on the side of Satan. This is the way things are uh, as far as our Lord is concerned. Now, it's only in Luke's gospel that we see the raising of the son of the widow of the town of Nain. In, in Aramaic and Hebrew, the word is Nain. Nain. There's a letter that we don't have that they do have. And so that's why I say it sometimes that way. But the, the town is still there, still an inhabited town, and there's a, a church right in the middle of it to mark this miracle. And we'll see that our Lord is doing something that had happened under Elisha, who raised the son of a widow in Sarafat. Sarafat is a town just south of Sidon in Lebanon. He also raised, uh, or Elisha raised the son of a woman who was married. She wasn't a widow, but she, she was married and her son died from sunstroke while working with his father. And Elisha the prophet raised him. That's in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 18 to 23. But we'll see something different. Both Elijah and Elisha had to lay on top of the dead bodies. And it's as if the Lord used them to conduct the power of life into them. Not so here. Our Lord Jesus will do so simply by the power of his word. He has so much power over life and death that his word simply raises this, this boy, this young man. All right, so let's start off here. Um, uh, uh, oh, by the way, I almost forgot. There's another connection that we need to have from the Old Testament to the New. And it's something that we'll see in Luke chapter 7. In Luke 7, the disciples of John the Baptist will come to Jesus and say, are you he who is to come? Now that phrase, he who is to come, in Hebrew is just one word. We have, to, we have to use he who is to come, five words, to translate the simple Hebrew word haba, haba. But that's what it, it's the best way to translate it one who's to come. This is a phrase in the last chapter of the prophet Malachi that refers to the Messiah. When John uses that title, are you he who is to come, it's a title for the Messiah. And the reason he chooses that is the next verses say that Elijah will come before him. A reference to John. Remember at John's Annunciation of his birth, he, Zechariah was said, he will have the spirit of Elijah. Not like some silly people try to say, well, he's Elijah reincarnated. 
eh, wrong answer. Uh, because we'll see Elijah come back with Christ at the transfiguration. That's just silly talk. But, um, of course, but uh, by people trying to promote new age. But he asks if Jesus is the Messiah and John is the, has the spirit of Elijah that was predicted. So that's the context there. And our Lord will say, the sick are healed, the blind have their sight, the lame walk, and the dead are raised. It's referring back to this. This is the first raising of the dead that we see. Okay? So this is very important. So we see then in verse 11, chapter uh, 7, verse 11, soon afterward, Jesus went to a city, a town called Nain, or Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went with him. As he approached the gate of the town, a man who had died was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. And with her was a large crowd from the town. When the Lord saw her, she, he had compassion for her and said, do not weep. Now, a couple things. The town of Naim is at the base of Mount Tabor, where eventually we tradition holds that the, uh, uh, the uh, transfiguration happened. And one of the very interesting, the most interesting things about Naim to me, and those who see the screen, you can see a picture of that small church to commemorate this miracle. One of the most interesting things to me is that from Naim, you can see Nazareth across the valley. And while I was there one time, oh, many years ago, it struck me how this could not, I, I can't help our Lord thinking about his own widowed mother who would lose her son who would eventually be raised up, that having an understanding of that, I believe is the source of his compassion toward this widow. The woman that he loved so much, his mother, and the similarity to this widow moved his heart. This is a very important thing. And we also see something else here, just going back to uh, the prophet Elijah, that it says Jesus drew near to the gate of the city, just like Elijah had approached to Zarephath. When he, it says in 1 Kings 17.10, so Elijah set out and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the town, a widow was there gathering sticks, and he called her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel so that I may drink, and then bring me a piece of bread, and she didn't have any, but um, he told her to go ahead and do it, and that the bread, the, the grain would not run out. Um, she was preparing the last meal for herself and her son before they died of starvation during uh, a terrible famine due to uh, a two, three-year drought. And 
then we see that when, remember, Jairus, uh, which will come later on in chapter 10 of uh, the Gospel of Luke, Jairus' daughter is close to death, but she's still alive when Jairus comes there. And later on, our Lord raises her. But what's interesting there, there's a great contrast. Jairus was the one who took the initiative to ask Jesus to raise his daughter. Here, our Lord takes the initiative. Nobody asked him, would you mind raising this boy up? It's his widowed mother's only son. Nope, he, he takes the, in, uh, the initiative. And like I say, I just can't help but think that initiative came because of his empathy towards his own mother, who a widow that will lose her son at the cross and watch. And then any of you parents who have lost a child know that there's nothing worse. I've never met a parent who said, oh, I'm so glad the kid died and I'm still alive. No. Every parent I know always says, let me die, let the kid live. That's always, the, but you know, there's oftentimes not much you can do. Um, and so that's the, the situation. And I think that empathy and thinking about his mother just across the valley is why of all the different funerals taking place in the Holy Land at this time, he chooses this one to interrupt it, stop the procession toward the grave, and, you know, go ahead and raise up the young man. Now notice how he speaks to her. Do not weep. You know, she certainly is well aware that the love that we have for our family and our friends in this life stirs up compassion. And that's why we weep. I mean, we know that we're going to miss them. And oftentimes when we see people experiencing the grief of losing a loved one, we also resonate with them, that they're losing that person, and we feel compassion with them. And it's very important that compassion is meant to help us move our feelings out of ourselves to care for somebody else. You don't think about your own emotional need at that point, but you have this compassion toward other people in their grief. And our Lord does that. And he knew that this was a great uh, gift to have compassion. I think uh, too often people uh, are losing that gift. I remember just uh, in August, I was celebrating the funeral of a very old friend. And as we're going to the cemetery for the burial, the um, we passed through a stoplight, and he told me about how a funeral earlier in the year, or maybe last year, for a little girl, 10-year-old, the, there was a car of teenagers who were in a hurry. They didn't want to wait for the funeral. This is a smaller town, and so people pulled off to the side. That goes on a lot, right? Out of respect and, again, compassion. 
and these teenagers hurried next to them and gave the grieving parents the finger. And this is a consummate lack of compassion. And, you know, we have to you know, pay attention that such an evil act, because it's just plain evil to do such a thing. To, and the father, by the way, died a couple years, uh, I guess it was a few years ago that the daughter died. The father died this year. And as he was dying, that, that was still a grievous pain to him. A grievous pain. It hurt his feelings for till till he passed. This is a very important thing, and our Lord shows it. He'll show it when he's at the funeral of Lazarus, when he goes to Lazarus' grave, and he'll show it here. And I think the difference is this. Our Lord knows that he's loved. He knows that he's the beloved of the Father. He knows his mother loved him. And as people who experience this kind of deep love that are able to have compassion for others, while sociopathic people are incapable of such empathy, they can't, they don't feel it. Oftentimes because they have not been loved and they don't go from their own experience of hurt and pain over not being loved, they don't know how to go from that to say, look, I'm not going to do that to other people. Other people have hurt me and not loved me. And they can either say, I need to take an effort to go out and love others, or I'll get back at them and be mean. This is a basic choice. Now, another issue, too, is that a lot of times people are tempted to think that God doesn't care about their pain. He doesn't care about their grief. God seems too distant, too far away, and our little problems seem too tiny. But here we see God doing the opposite. God made flesh reaches out to this widow. And we need to take a look at this to be reminded that the Lord is not too distant from our grief. He wants to be there with us. And, you know, we would do well to put ourselves in the place of this widow. Put yourself in her position. And somebody living in Galilee, she probably heard rumors about Jesus preaching and healing people. Um, but, you know, you can ask, well, my son is dead. I don't really have time to think about that. But now, as Christ comes in, she experiences Jesus reaching out to her. Do not weep. He does it with compassion, not saying, come on, grow up, stop, you know, it's crying, it's not going to change anything. No, no, no. He tells her to weep as a way to comfort her, not to weep, as a way to comfort her. And imagine Christ coming into your own life and reaching out like he did to this widow. And he does have concern for your deepest hurts, your deep losses. And we do well to let him comfort us and know that his compassion is authentic, 
He strongly felt it in his day, and he still has compassion toward us now. And perhaps conclude with that prayer, soul of Christ, sanctify me, body of Christ, save me, blood of Christ, inebriate me, water from the side of Christ, wash me, passion of Christ, strengthen me. These would be good ways for us to pray through this and allow our Lord's compassion to come into our own difficulties, pains, and losses. All right, let's take a break. We'll come back and conclude this passage. So please stay with us. Thank you. We'll start now with the second meditation on this passage. And this is where Jesus actually raises the young man to life. That's found in Luke 7, verses 14 to 17. So we see there that then Jesus came forward and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, rise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized all of them. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has looked favorably on his people. This word about him spread throughout Judea and all the surrounding country. All right, so um, this is something that is fairly interesting. First of all, the miracle begins with our Lord touching the funeral bier, the, the pallet that they were carrying him on. That's our English word for that. And this is something odd because the Old Testament law forbids touching the dead unnecessarily. In Levitic, excuse me, in Numbers chapter 19, verse 11, it says, those who touch the dead body of any human being shall be unclean seven days. Now, it's inevitable that you have to touch dead bodies sometimes, and you're just ritually unclean. You can't go to the temple for that seven days. And it's not because they thought of this as something filthy or dirty. It's rather, you know, God, and this is true of lots of the laws of clean and unclean in the Old Testament, God is in charge of life and death. God is the one who gives us life. And ultimately, He's the one that, it takes care of these things, including 
he has a plan for how long he wants us to live. Those who, again, we've talked before, would use, uh, would follow Satan to use murder and killing people. That's on the side of the evil one. But God otherwise is the one who determines the length of our lives. And so death is part of his realm too. You know, something that he has charge of. And so it has a sacred quality. This is something that is coming to a new kind of problem. Um, I'm well aware that in many places it's very difficult to uh, bury people in a cemetery because of the cost. Funeral expenses have gotten out of sight. And you know, a lot of people cremate their loved ones and, uh, and the proper thing is to put them in a columbarium or in a Christian grave. Keeping them around or just today I heard that there's a company that will be willing to turn them into ink and you can make a tattoo out of the cremens of your relatives. Another problem that, in fact, the same um, uh, funeral director that I met in August said is that there's a big difficulty that a lot of people have their relatives cremated and they don't come to pick up the cremains. They leave them there. It becomes not a sign of respect for the resurrection of the dead and for, and for their dead relatives, but it's a way to get rid of them, cheap. And they don't pick them up. And some, sometimes funeral directors are talking about having hundreds of containers of cremans that are left behind and nobody wants them. This is um, something that, you know, we show respect and that's, you know, why some of that law about clean and unclean is there. We treat the dead with great respect. And that's a very important thing. And this was also true of our Lord being touched by the woman with the hemorrhage. If you're bleeding, that makes you unclean. Or the leper, that also would make you unclean to touch a leper. But exactly as our Lord had sought out sinners, as we saw, for instance, in the conversion of St. Matthew, he also reaches out to other people in need, including those who would be considered ritually unclean, like the leper, or in this case, someone who's dead. But here's the amazing thing. Because he is God-made flesh, the ritual impurity does not defile Jesus, but rather Jesus brings a cleansing of that which would have been defiling. In this case, to raise the young man up so that he is not dead. And this is a, a, an amazing aspect of his power that instead of being made unclean by humans and their weaknesses, he cleanses them and makes them alive in his strength. Very important image for the role of God's grace in our lives. We need to depend on him. 
And of course, raising someone who is already dead is even more amazing than healing a leper or a woman with a hemorrhage. And it's so amazing that the people are filled with fear and at the same time they praise God and they proclaim faith in Jesus Christ. All three of these go together. Now, think about that in terms of the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom. A lot of times people are afraid to be afraid of God, but fear of the Lord is something that a lot more people need. You know, I, I wish that every person who's thinking of committing crimes would be filled with fear of the Lord, fear of the judgment seat of God. Because not only can I live with them having that fear of God, so could their victims. A lot fewer people would be murdered or given fentanyl and lots of other terrible things. A lot, you wouldn't have people being enslaved. If people had fear of God who created the immortal souls of the present-day slaves in the sex trafficking, there'd be a lot less of that. And this is a very important thing. But it's also that they are praising God for it. Fear of the Lord doesn't mean you don't praise God with great joy, and it doesn't exclude faith. They proclaim a great prophet has risen, arisen among us, and God has visited his people. They have a way to go to understand Jesus fully, but this is a start. And think about these statements of faith in Jesus. This is something that we also need to have as a reaction. We meditate on this passage. We want to grow in that faith. Think about how Zechariah, who as soon as he had said that the child's name is John, he was able to speak after nine months of silence. And what did he do? He praised God. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. This is the kind of reaction that we have to God's action. And this, by the way, is not speaking about his own son, John. This is speaking about the child that was inside the womb of Our Lady. He was addressing that first part of his canticle to the baby in Mary's womb. And he recognized that in that child, the Lord has you know, visited his people. And this same phrase, the same word about visiting his people is now spoken by the people of Naim. They also say, God has visited his people. So that visitation, it's a word that comes, it's used in the Old Testament, especially uh, uh, Exodus 32, verse 34, as a sign of God coming in to people's lives to judge them for good or for ill. And they, they use it here just like Zechariah had done. And also it says, you know, Zechariah speaks to, about his own eight-day-old son, John. 
in Luke 1, 76, and you, child, shall be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Remember, it's right after this, John is going to be the one who knows that he's the one to prepare the way of the Lord, but he still has a question, is, are you the one who's to come? It's interesting to see the reminder of that connection. And here, the people in verse 16 are saying uh, that a great prophet has risen among us. They're recognizing it, but John's going to need confirmation of it. He's the one who comes before the Messiah, but now the people say, yes, a great uh, prophet has risen up. And all of these people are recognizing this great power of God because of the raising of the uh, uh, young man who had died. And this also raises up a question. Who is this man that can do this? Who can do these amazing things? These kind of questions should arise. The Pharisees asked it when he forgave the sins of the paralytic, said, who is he to forgive sins? And the question will be raised a lot of other times when our Lord heals people and even overcomes nature by calming the storm. The apostles say, who is this that calms the storm? The, these miracles keep raising up the question so that it'll culminate when Jesus asks the apostles, who do people say that the Son of Man is? In Matthew 16 and also in Luke 9, 18, a couple chapters after this. And each of us has to deal with that same question. We have to ask the same question. Who do I say that Jesus is? What is the faith in the miracles of the gospel? A lot of people deny the miracles. Say, oh, it's just a natural thing. Were the evangelists then making these miracles up? Or were the people duped and Jesus was tricking them? And, and if he's tricking them and duping them, he's lying, isn't he? These miracles didn't happen. He's just using tricks. Some German scholars back in the uh, early 1800s, late 1700s, were saying, well, Jesus had a, a secret medicine bag and the apostles didn't understand what it was. Actually, they knew what doctors were. There was more than one Jewish doctor in the Holy Land. You know, they, they knew what that was and so on. We have to ask, was Jesus simply a prophet who did some good deeds, spoke some nice moral teachings, or is he God the Son? And we have to speak to Jesus. We have to bring that to our prayer. Who are you? What do you say about yourself? And we want to engage him in this conversation about the meaning of his miracles. What do they mean for us? It's a very important question. And then perhaps just conclude with the glory be to the Father, praising God for what he does in your life and for who he is in your life. This would be a good way to conclude praying with this. Okay.
All right. Well, let's, let's start off with an email that just came in from Maria. Uh, Dear Father Paco, my brother is a fallen away Catholic. He has children who will be receiving First Communion and the parish requires him to take the kids to Mass. Now that he's going to Mass, he receives Communion but does not seem to come back to the faith. Would he be committing a grave sin by going to Communion without repenting? Uh, Maria from Staten Island, New York. Yeah, Maria. Um, you know, this is something that, and what you want to do is, uh, I, I don't know your brother, you know him better than I do, and you have to pay attention to the tone with which you address him. Are you going to be harsh? You hypocrite, you're going to communion, you haven't gone to confession yet. Uh, or are you going to say, um, brother, what about the lack of faith that you have? What's going on in your faith life? I would start off that way rather than beginning with a harsh judgment. Find out what's going on and take a look at some of the ways that, uh, as a matter of fact, a good passage for him might be the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Remember how uh, he, they start talking about who Jesus is and all that and, uh, she, and he says, I can give the water life and she says, oh, I want that water. She says, good, good, go call your husband. Uh, well, I don't have a husband. Now, he could have said, you lying hussy! Shame on you lying to God the Son to his face. He could have done that. It would have been true. But he does says, oh, no, you're right. You don't have a husband. You have five. Notice how he turns it around. And then she says, truly, come and see this man. He's a prophet. And he told me everything I ever did. You know, that would be a good way to deal with that. Does that make sense? Start off there. If he becomes somewhat insistent, because you, you want to encourage what probably is a growing faith. He may have talked himself out of believing, but he probably still had faith, but some other issue is there. Say, just say to him, you know, brother, why don't you go talk to one of the priests? You know, talk to Father Sosa. He's a nice guy. And just talk about what's going on. And any good priest there will slip in a good confession too. All right. Um, let's uh, instead uh, go ahead and take a break. And we'll come back with more of your questions. And of course, your audience has some of their questions too. So please stay with us.
All right. So um, now we're going to take some more questions. We have a uh, question from our studio audience. Father, where are you from? Lake Charles, Louisiana. It's a nice town. That, hopefully you all have built up after the last hurricanes that hit. Slowly, but we're Slowly. getting there. Yeah, I know. Y'all got hit hard. Mm -hmm. but hit hard. So what can we do for you? So, you know, as a pastor, we deal a lot with burying the dead yep. as one of our works. Um, but more and more, we've seen people choosing cremation and not wanting to bury their loved ones' mm -hmm. cremains. Mm -hmm. But they're wanting to scatter them. Uh, maybe they have financial difficulties and can't afford to bury them. Um, sometimes they have a hard time letting go and just mm -hmm. want to keep them up on the mantelpiece sure. or whatever. Um, how would you respond to someone who's not really wanting to bury their loved one. If, as you would well know, that the uh, church has the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. There are seven that the church lays out. Six of them come right from Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 and following, about feeding the hungry, giving water to the thirsty, caring for the sick, visiting the imprisoned. But the seventh one comes from the book of Tobit. And that corporal work of mercy is to bury the dead. Now, this is something that I think we priests need to talk more about, these corporal works of mercy. There is a certain ideological issue because people don't like speaking about such works as works of mercy. They want to talk about it in terms of justice. I think that's a mistake. They're works of mercy, and we want to show mercy. But it's a merciful act to bury the dead. And we have to help our people prepare this so that they understand hanging on to the body of some, someone cremated them, is not the goal. You bury them in preparation for the resurrection of the dead. They can't really speak to you. You can't, you know, really, you'll see dust from them, charred dust at that. And most of the time they don't see the, the dust. It's not about you remembering them and having different feelings, it's rather care for them in preparation for the dead. And that's where the mercy comes in. Now, they also can be reminded of the beatitude, blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. That grief is something our Lord not only understands, but included within the Beatitudes. But they need to see this as not having the person there for your comfort. Rather, your mercy toward them is to pray for their souls. If they're in purgatory, they'll need it. And if they're not, let somebody else receive the benefit. But that kind of care for the dead rather than them caring for us or trying to have them still care for us when their ashes is not wise. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
All right, you have another question from our studio audience. Sir, where are you from? Cleveland, Ohio, not far from where Mother Angelic was born. Okay, good. Good to have you here. What can we do for you? I wondered how long the people he raised lived for. Did I'm assuming did they mm -hmm. die a peaceful death? Mm -hmm. Did they were they gone right to heaven? You know, my suspicion, I, I, I uh, with this guy, is that Saint Luke may well he's the only one who reports this. Remember that Saint Luke lived with Saint Paul in the Holy Land. For almost two years, or well, oh, a good year and a half, he lived there. My suspicion is that the only reason that St. Luke has this episode is he may well have known the guy. That's why he includes it. There are a number of things, a uh, number of uh, episodes in St. Luke where he talks about individuals that he's aware of. So does St. Paul at times. You know, they, they mention, uh, a lot of times when you see names of people that are otherwise fairly obscure, these are still folks that are alive. And they know them. So Luke would not have known when the guy died. My suspicion is that he is still alive. And, you know, I myself posit, uh, along with others, you know, Luke, Timothy, Johnson, and others, that the Luke Acts was completed in 62 AD. Why do I give that date? Because Paul arrived in Rome in the winter of 60. And he stayed for two years under house arrest. And then we don't find out what happened. We don't see any mention what happened to him. Why doesn't St. Luke tell us about that? Because he didn't know. He stopped writing in 62 and he didn't know what happened next. You know, he uh, otherwise, he uh, you know, mentioned the martyrdom, very, the longest chapter of Luke Acts is the martyrdom of St. Stephen. Oh, sorry, longest chapter in Acts of the Apostles, martyrdom of St. Stephen, otherwise an obscure character. But St. Paul's martyrdom and St. Peter's martyrdom is not mentioned, even though they are the two main human characters in Acts. The reason he didn't mention it, that hadn't happened yet. He didn't know. You know, he doesn't mention the destruction of Jerusalem, which Christ had predicted. And I think he doesn't mention the destruction of Jerusalem because it hadn't happened yet. It'd be another eight years before it happens. That's my thinking. So he was, he's probably still alive. And as far as Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, he later became the bishop of southern, well, uh, eastern uh, I guess southeastern uh, Cyprus. So I've been to both of his tombs, the one in Bethany and his tomb in Larnaca. You can still see it's at a church, a Greek Orthodox church in Larnaca in Cyprus. So he went on to, and he was later martyred. martyred. Ma'am, where are you from? Lincoln, Nebraska. Wonderful. Great to have you here. What can we do for you? Um, you mentioned John the Baptist. 
didn't, and, and him questioning who Jesus was, didn't he know that he was the son of God and that he was God and he could raise people from the dead? Apparently not. Do you have any long lost relatives that you don't know very well? I'm sure I do. Yeah, most of us do. And, you know, St. John was from Judah in the south. Our Lord lived up in Galilee. St. John's parents died when he was young. And it says that he lived in the desert, right? So he wasn't hanging around with our Lord growing up. And again, what my own supposition is that he was raised at the, by the community at Qumran, the Essenes that wrote the, um, uh, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Because one of the things they did was raise the ch uh, orphaned children, especially of priests. And then when they were old enough, they'd give them a chance, a choice to leave or to stay, you know, but they uh, would raise them. So I suspect they just didn't know each other. And all of us have relatives like that. You know, my, my relatives, I, I met my cousins in our village of Nova Yastromka in 1979. They didn't know that I was a priest. They, they hadn't, my grandmother never said anything about that. Um, and so uh, they, they didn't know me. Now they do, but it took a while, maybe to their regret. No, no, they're, <laughs> they're very kind. They're very kind. They're very generous to, in, in being nice. All right, we have Kathy in New York. Hello, Kathy. Hi, Father Mitch. How are you? I'm well, thank you, ma'am. What can we do for you? Well, I heard you talk on the family celebration. And I thought it was terrific. I think it should be required listening for every Catholic out there. Um, I would well, like to you. know, my question is, why don't priests speak that way from the pulpit? Why do they, they I, I don't know, sugarcoat everything? They don't yeah. talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. They don't talk about uh, the things they should talk about in this day and age. And they need, to, they need to speak more like you did. That was my question. God bless. <laughs> well, um, I think we really want them to speak better than that. <laughs> I don't want to see myself as the norm. But, you know, uh, there are a lot of things going on. Um, I know I have priest friends in one diocese um, where the bishop calls them up if they speak like that and tells them to stop. If they speak against abortion or birth control, or a variety of other things in terms of morality, the bishop calls them and tells them to be quiet. And one, you know, one of my friends had to just resign. You know, he, he, he's retired, I should say. He didn't resign, but he retired because he just wasn't going to live like that. Um, you know, this, that happens. Another priest told me, uh, you got to stop speaking about hell. They'll never make you a bishop. <laughs> I told him, is that all it takes? <laughs> I'm Dublin. <laughs> so I'm still following that program. But, you know, uh, uh, there, there are a lot of things. And also a lot of priests, you know, want to make sure that they don't offend people. Um, 
I'm old. I guess I don't care. <laughs> so I don't worry about it too much. All right. And then we have another email from John in Philadelphia. Father Mitch, I read the concept of original sin was developed by St. Augustine. If this is true, then what was the basis of baptism during Jesus' time? Um, okay, John, that, that would be an imprecise statement that somebody told you. St. Augustine developed the language of original sin, and uh, he, yeah, he you know, did do that. But you already see, I, I urge you to do this, read Romans chapter 5, Romans 3, and you see that we've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. Now, he didn't use the word original sin, but that's what theologians do. They take terms from their own culture and time to explain what the scripture is saying. So it's, he didn't invent it. it. It's very much part of scripture. So, But take a look at Romans 3 through 5 and you'll see what I mean. Another thing we have to do is that we're out of time. So may the good Lord bless you and keep you, cause his face to shine upon you and lead you in all of your ways by his peace. The Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. And again, want to thank you for all the support that you give us. But do remember that the network is brought to you by you, no one else. So please keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill. And we'll be able to pay all of our bills too. God bless you and thank you.